0: We can turn away from your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one, taking a break from Colossians as we focus on the incarnation. Uh, we're going to do Matthew's chapter one and Matthew chapters one and two for our incarnational focus this December. Uh, but we'll start with the genealogy in Matthew, chapter one, verses one through 17. So, Matthew chapter one, I'll begin reading at verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. And Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab. Amminadab begot Nashon. And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Akim, and Akim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Matan. And Matan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we are thankful that you teach us about who our Christ is in this genealogy. And we pray, O oh God, that we would see that, that we would see the royal lineage of our Lord, that we would see that he is of, of the son of David, and we also pray, O oh God, that we would see he is the son of Abraham. Thank you that this one who was born to Mary, the wife of a carpenter, this one who had lowly birth, is really the one who is of David. So help us to see this, O oh God. Help us to see Christ in all his glory, even in his genealogical record. Thank you, O God, that he is uh, fully God, but we're thankful also that he is fully man. And thank you, O God, that he assumed a human nature. He took on human flesh, and we're thankful that that flesh he took on is really of the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. Thank you that he is the Savior. Thank you that he is the Messiah. Thank you that in him is life everlasting. And so we pray, O God, as we come to consider his family history, we pray, O God, that it would be edifying for your people. We pray, oh God, we would be uplifted. We pray, oh God, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened to know who our Christ is. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that you would save their souls, help them to look to Christ and find life everlasting, that there is mercy and forgiveness in him. And in all things, all things of God, we pray that you be glorified and we pray especially that you be glorified as you send forth your spirit. For again, we need help to understand these things. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ, amen. Well, the Apostle Paul has warned in a few of his letters that we ought not to focus so much on genealogies. And I think certainly what he's saying there is true, because sometimes when we come to the genealogies of Jesus, we like to focus on the numbers. We like to do some sort of math to try and figure out how old the earth is. And perhaps if it doesn't line up the way we think it should line up, people get their bee in a bonnet. That is the wrong way to approach the genealogies, I think, especially when you consider them in their biblical context and consider what they were meant to do. You see, if we focus on the numbers, focus on the calculations, we miss the point entirely of what genealogies are all about. You see, the purpose of genealogies in the Bible uh, is theological and not statistical. Or, as Hendrickson says, it's Christological and not chronological. That is, Matthew has a reason for starting this way, and Matthew has a reason for including the names that he mentions in his genealogy. Matthew wants us to see something about the Lord Jesus Christ, wants us to see something about who our Savior is. Now, remember, Matthew is a disciple of our Lord, he is the one who writes the first gospel in order. And in writing, I believe in Matthean priority, but I'm not going to get into that. But I do believe Matthew is the first gospel. And I do believe he's writing to finish the Hebrew Bible. And hopefully I highlight that as we go through. And Matthew is writing to Jewish Christians. He wants to show forth for them that Jesus of Nazareth really is the long awaited messiah he wants them to see that really this one who is promised of the old is finds fulfillment in the new in the one who is christ and especially in the birth narrative we see the emphasis on jesus fulfilling a ton of old testament passages which we will see as we go through and as matthew writes he highlights that Jesus really is the hope for a people who do not have a king, a hope for a people who are waiting for that king to come. Now, I think the problem that we can see in this genealogy is the failures of so-called good people. We go through this big swath of Israel's history in these genealogies, in these generations. Some certainly are ones you would like to blot out from the family line. But we see Old Testament people, including believers, had their bl- Old Testament believers had their blunders. They had their sins. Some of them had their major things that, uh, in which they violated God's law. You wouldn't think that we would include them in the family line. You think we like to blot them out. Don't talk about Aunt Gefilda for what she did. You don't want to talk about her. Because of all the things that you would... Christ has some interesting figures in his line he wants us to see that Israel was not perfect. And the figures in Israel's history were not perfect. And Israel's imperfection eventually leads to their exile into into Babylon. And even when the people return, there is still no king on the throne. They're still awaiting for the son of David to come. And so in Matthew 1 verses 1 through 17, Matthew does want us to see that Jesus really is the long-awaited Savior of Israel. He really is the one who is born of the seed of Abraham and born of the seed of David. He wants us to see the family history of our Lord. And so we'll look at this family history under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the son of a Jew, verses 1 through 5. Secondly, we'll see the son of a king, verses 6 through 11. Then lastly, we'll see the son of a woman, verses 12 through 17. So the son of a Jew, verses 1 through 5. Then secondly, the son of a king, verses 6 through, uh, through 11. Then lastly, the son of a woman, verses 12 through 17. So let's first look at the son of a Jew in verses 1 through 5. And notice we see the subject of the entire gospel in verse 1. The book or record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, so again, we have to understand the purpose for genealogies. One purpose was to look back, and the purpose for looking back was that one that might have then a record of who they are. People have to know where one comes from, and genealogies kind of acted as a birth certificate of sorts. You certainly see this in Ezra. You see this in Numbers as well, especially in Ezra chapter 2. They wanted to confirm if certain men were of the priesthood or not, and the genealogies function in that way. So it's a proof of heritage, a proof of one's family line. And certainly that was important uh, for the Jews. Here's this one, Jesus of Nazareth, born of a carpenter. He really was born in a lowly place, but yet he has a royal lineage. And so they're proving that he isn't just some uh, just one-off type of Messiah coming about. He really is the one promised of Old. And so they were used to prove someone's heritage. So the purpose was one, to look back, but also they looked forward. And that really is the key purpose. You see, the genealogies, especially in God's word, hopefully Genesis comes to mind. There's a ton of genealogies in Genesis, the Toldote structures there, all of them point forward. All of them give the history of the next figure one would be talking about. So you go all the way to Abraham, Abraham's next and then you go all the way down to uh uh, uh um, all the way down to Isaac and then J- it's all for the purpose of pointing forward to who would be next in line. That's what they were for. And so the same thing is true here. We're seeing the subject of the one who has come. We're seeing the subject of what this gospel is about, the one who is promised of old and ha- now has come so it is about jesus it's about who he is it's about where he comes from and it's about his saving work and again this genealogy notice the book of the genealogy is theological rather than statistical and perhaps there is even a different purpose from luke's gospel in luke chapter three in luke we see ascending from jesus to adam here we have a descending um, genealogy from Abraham down to Jesus, all the ones starting from Abraham and down to our Lord, and perhaps Matthew is emphasizing the fleshly birth and the royal line, the fleshly birth and the royal line, and perhaps Luke is emphasizing a priestly, a priestly aspect. That could be the case. I don't not hundred percent sure on Luke, but certainly Matthew is talking about the royal line, the royal line and the fleshly birth of the one of jesus of nazareth and so it's about him the book of the genealogy notice of jesus christ now we say our lord christ we say jesus a lot because he is our lord we need to stop and consider what that means and we're going to see the meaning for his name when we get to chapter one verse 21 and it is a glorious meaning he will save his people from their sins. It's a Greek form of Joshua is what Jesus is, the one who saves Yahweh saves. And isn't that a fitting name for our Lord? The one who comes to save his people from their sins. Even that name Jesus signifies what our Lord would do. But also we see he's Jesus Christ, not his last name, but signifies his messiahship signifies that he is the one promised signifies that he really is David's greater son his name is Jesus he will save his people from their sins he is the messiah promised of old he really is the christ the son of god and then notice he says the son of david the son of abraham he is the one for there was a king forever promised to david in second samuel 7 psalm 89 and psalm 132 but also in first chronicles 17 and first chronicles 22 there would be the one of the son of david who would come chronicles really is that book or those that book that's hard for us to uh we always kind of pass over it when we're reading maybe you don't but i do sometimes we like kings but we kind of forget chronicles we don't know how they fit together but chronicles does play an important role especially as we consider its connection with matthew and so Chronicles should be in mind. And so First Chronicles 17 highlights that there would be the one who is the son of David who would come. I will be a father to him. He will be my son. That's also in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. So he is the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham. Remember, God gave that promise to Abraham. His seed would be forever. Certainly Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 especially comes to mind as well. After uh, Abraham brings his son ready right, to sacrifice his son, he says, I will establish your seed for ever. What's important to highlight too, is that the Jews claim to be the sons of Abraham. Now, Jesus in John eight is going to call him the son of the devil. And he says before Abraham was, I am. And he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, but It highlights that he really was a Jew. It highlights he really did descend from the promises of Abraham. He really is the promised seed. And also, it's important to highlight that it would be uh, the salvation of the world would come through the seed of Abraham. That is, through an Israelite, through a Jew, salvation would come. I think this is highlighted for us in that first gener- uh, that first generation or generations in verses 2 through 6 or 2 through 5. We see as we go into the genealogy proper, we see we go from Abraham to David with all sorts of s- sinful things in between. Verses 2 through 5, we see where he comes from when it comes to Abraham. Notice, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his Brothers, remember Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldeans and God called him out of that place and said, I will uh, come to the land that I will show you. And he shows and appears to him in Genesis chapter 12. Well, remember, Sarai, his wife, was barren. She did not have any. She was old and did not have any children. And so really Isaac's birth was the promise that God gave to Abraham. He was 100. Sarah was 90. It was what God did. It was a supernatural birth. Not in the same way with respect to our Lord, but it was the work of God to bring about the seed. It was the work of God to bring about his promises that he made to Abraham. Not through Hagar, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And so we see the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then from Jacob, we have Judah and his brothers, Now remember, Reuben was the firstborn, Joseph was the favorite, but the line was going to come through Judah. And so we were looking for the line of the tribe of Judah who would come. And notice we see Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And the reason he mentions brothers there is because even though it was through Judah, it was still had significance for the people of Israel as a whole. Even though they were divided by 12 tribes, it would, the line would still come through Judah, but the, the one who came from Ju, uh, through Judah would be the one who saves his people. And so there's this significance, messianic significance for the whole. And I think what Matthew is also trying to do here in Matthew 1 and 2 is to highlight that Jesus really is the true Israel. I mean, you see all the failures of the old Israel, you see all the failures of, the, of all their sins that they commit. And he wants us to see that Jesus really is the one who does what Israel could not do. We're especially going to see this with all the fulfillment language from various prophet, uh, prophetic passages, especially Hosea 11. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So yes, the, uh, the Messiah would come through Judah, but it had significance for all the people. And then notice, after Judah, we go from Judah to Ram. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I'm just going to stop there for a minute. Why does he mention Zerah? I have no idea. Perhaps it shows, again, God's purpose and God's promise rather than it was, you know, Zerah was the oldest, but it would be through Perez. Notice Esau's not mentioned in this, but Zerah is, but the line would come through Perez. But notice their mother. Judah begot Perez Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is hopefully you have Genesis 38 ringing in your mind, that section in scripture you feel like you need to have a bath after after you read it, because of all the things that occur there. Notice what Matthew mentions, and he highlights. It's not Judah's moving speech to take the place of Benjamin, is it? Notice. It is not so much the prophecy concerning Judah, Genesis 49, but it's the incest. Remember, Judah engaged in fornication with his daughter-in-law. And yes, even though they're not blood, it's still incest. It's called affinity. It's called incest by law. And so you know how that whole scenario, she had more concern for the line than he did. And so she took matters into her own hands and she... You know, essentially, you know, duped him into engaging in acts of of a sexual nature with him, and then through her, the line would come because he was not giving the youngest to her. And even as he says, I know it's hard for us, but he says to her, she is more righteous than I. And the reason he says that is because of her concern for the line more than him. And we could say that's when God saved Judah after the incest he engaged in. And I think one recurring theme throughout the genealogy is all of the wickedness we see emerge from these people. I think that's on purpose. It's to highlight why Christ came to die or came to into this world. He came to die. But why does he die? To save his people from what? Their sins. As Paul says in Second second Corinthians 5, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. I think the wickedness of the figures, the people in this line, highlight that very thing. But also notice as well that Tamar was a Canaanite, and all the ladies involved here are not Jews. So Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. We can just skip over them. And then Ram begot Amenadab, and Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Notice there are a few no names in the line of, line of Christ, or perhaps names we don't know as well as we should, or names we forget. You know, there are names in here that we all know. We could name them, we could, as we're reading about them, we could name and pinpoint who they are. But there are some people we have no idea who they are. And there's some people we've just forgotten about i think Aminadab and nation are the people we've forgotten about when it comes to remembering people's names i find it easiest to remember someone's name who i see every week right and if i don't see someone then it's easy to forget their name but one thing that's really hard is when you learn someone's name they go away for like a month and they come back and you're like ah oh, i forgot your name that's the hardest isn't it they go away they come back they go away they come back that was the hardest in california i preach at different churches and i meet these people like Five times, but it's because it was a long... Anyway, I feel like Abinadab and Nashon are kind of like that. We kind of forget them. Aminadab, knew you know who Aminadab is? Aaron's father-in-law. Exodus chapter 6. And perhaps one thing all the names highlight are eras. And so Nashon uh, and Aminadab certainly highlight the Exodus era. In Exodus 6, we see the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And in verse 23... Aaron took to himself Elishaba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, as wife. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. So Aminadab was Aaron's father-in-law, and Nashon was one of the leaders in Judah in Numbers. And when it came to the offerings of the leaders, guess who was the first to bring that offering in Numbers 7? Nashon. So these are some leaders we don't know as well, or perhaps have forgotten, but they're still part of the line of our Lord. Not completely, there's not, there's not so much there are names here we have no idea about, but there are some that we know very little about, and Aminadab and Nashon certainly fall in that line. So Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. And then notice, we see some heathen women in the line of Christ in verses five or verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. Notice, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. We already have incest with Judah, and now we got a prostitute. Remember Rahab from Joshua chapter 2? Davis calls her the shady lady from Jericho. Remember what she does? She hides the spies, and she confesses that there is one true God. Wow, a prostitute confesses that there is one true God and she is brought into the people of God and she marries this guy named Salmon and notice she begets Boaz or uh, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab the harlot is in the line of Christ. Tamar the Canaanite is in the line of Christ. This heathen prostitute is in the line of Christ. But also we see Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now Ruth is obviously the namesake of the book, Ruth. And she's the one, she is a Moabite. She stays with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and comes back and clings to the people of God, clings to the God of Israel. And she eventually becomes a Mary's Boaz to perpetuate the line of Naomi. But we see it's Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. So we got heathen ladies, a Moabite who is in the line. We got a Jerichoite who is in the line. And we got a Canaanite who is in the line and so she begets obed uh, uh, she begets obed then obed begets jesse now, i think what we need to see here in verses one through five is how jesus really is the savior of his people and specifically the savior of the world notice the promise of abraham that he would have a seed which became israel that was for the benefit of the entire world right In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is really a Jew, and through this one who is the seed of Abraham, he really brings salvation. I mean, this is very clear in Galatians 3. Paul says, seed, singular, referring to our Lord. That is the fulfillment of Abraham is found in Christ. The fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham is found in Christ. And notice that broader application is not just for the Jew, but for the Greek also. That is, in Abraham, all the families would be blessed. And even through here, even the subtle mention of these Gentiles highlights that. A Canaanite, a Jerichoite, and a Moabite. They're all part of the people of God. They're Gentile foreshadows. There are many Gentile foreshadows in the Old Testament that point that those who are not Jews would come into the fold of God by faith. And that is a great blessing for us, dear brethren, because we are part of that new covenant era, wherein it's not just for Jew, but for Greek also. That is one who is part of the people of God is not based on ethnicity, but it's based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is also, I think, the purpose of the Magi, which we'll see in chapter two. Did I say that weird? The Magi, the Magi. Well, we'll figure out when we get there how we say that. But in chapter two, with the wise men, they come from afar. The purpose of that is to highlight the worldwide significance of the one who is born of the seed of Abraham. So Jesus really is the savior of the world. So that's the son of a Jew. Let's then look secondly at the son of a king in verses 6 through 11. Notice in verse 6, Jesse begot David the king. Israel, after the fall, or after the the exile, they were looking for one who would be king. The one who would be like David. David is the spiritual high point of the old covenant kings. Solomon is the political high point of the old covenant. And so Jesse begot David, the king. So David is the king. He's the only one mentioned as the king because you're looking for one who would be like him as the king. So notice then, David the king begets Solomon by her who had been wife of Uriah. That is the one we all love. David, who was born or who was a man after God's own heart, the one who you know, killed Goliath, he engages in adultery and murder. And again, notice, it's not the slang of Goliath that is mentioned. It's not the military might that David showed. It's his sin that is mentioned. Again, we see. By her who had been the wife of Uriah. After the Davidic covenant is given to, After that time, David goes and does wickedness with this one who was a Hittite. You know what makes it even worse, dear brethren? Uriah was one of his mighty men. Uriah was one of his closest friends. And to hide his sin this way shows that even the best of men are men at Best And even though it doesn't say Bathsheba, notice all it's trying to highlight what he did to Uriah. But notice still, though, God, be, or David begot Solomon by her. David begot Solomon by Bathsheba. God does bring about a judgment in a way by having the one who was for, oh, initially, uh, when she was initially with child, that child died. But then through her, he would bring the line of David, through Solomon. All of these ladies, well, three out of the four at least, had some sort of shady entrance into the people of God. And even Ruth went down to the threshing floor at night, although I don't think anything happened there. But three out of the four especially definitely came in some sort of shady entrance into the people of God. But God, through Bathsheba, begets Solomon. Now, again, Solomon is the golden age. But Solomon had his troubles too, didn't he? 700 wives, 200 concubines, that's not good for anybody. And so what is what happens? He eventually, because of his sin, God says, I'm going to rend the kingdom. He says, I'm not going to do it in your day, but I'm going to rend the kingdom under your son's day. And this is where we have that son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam's kingdom is divided. Jeroboam takes the north. Rehoboam takes the South and the two tribes in the South were Judah and Benjamin, the rest made up the Northern kingdom. But notice we're focusing in on the Judah, uh, the, the, the Kings of Judah. Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa. What we're going to see here is spiritual and political decline in the people of God by way of the King. They had a high point with Solomon politically. There's going to be decline to captivity there was the high point of, um, of, 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 of the spiritual king spiritually with David, and it's going to decline all the way into exile as well. So the kingdom is divided. Rehoboam begets Abijah. I'm going to blow through some of these kings a little bit here. Some we know, some we uh, are fond of, some we're not so fond of. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Several well-known and good kings, several wicked kings are in the line of Christ. But One thing I just want to point out is notice we see from Joram to Isaiah. There's three kings in between, right? There's Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. The reason I draw that, make that point is because begot doesn't always mean immediate seed. It can mean a distant seed in the future. And the reason I say that Don't go to your Old Testament and add up all the ages of everybody to try and determine how old the world is, okay? I believe in a young earth creation. I do believe that, but I'm not going to worry about and wonder about the exact age of the earth, okay? And so don't do that. Seriously, do not do that. I know someone here is going to do that. I'm telling you right now, do not do that. Just understand it's theological. Understand there's a purpose for it. Understand that, you know, we can't know everything. But thankfully, we can know something about our God. And so even with these wicked kings, there's still the, king, the Messiah to come through them. And so all the way down to Hezekiah, Isaiah verse 9, begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a great king. Ahaz is a terrible king, and then Hezekiah's son Manasseh is the worst king in Judah. Does terrible things, and he reigned a long time. Is that hard for us to grasp sometimes? God's providence that way. He reigned like the longest time. Then his and then Josiah, his grandson, reigned only a short time. Who was good, but Manasseh is terrible. I mean, we have these terrible kings. Terrible kings. Here was the worst. Uh, Perhaps there's some hope with Josiah, but he dies, amen, to Josiah. And then from Josiah to the captivity, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon, which you all know the date being 586 BC after they were carried away. Although Jeconiah perhaps was taken in the 597 aspect, uh, 597 um, captivity, the precursor to the big one. Uh, But nonetheless, the people have now been sent into captivity. That would have been hard for the remnant, wouldn't it? They thought that David's son would reign forever, but now the king's off the throne, so what's going to happen? That's why Psalm 89 kind of turns the way it does. It starts off great as we read it, but then it kind of turns to despair a little bit. Not despair, but discouragement. Discouragement. And perhaps that's why we have the promise in Isaiah of the stump king who would come and the promise of the child who would come and, and the promise of uh, of the servant who would come. It's because in the midst of exile, in the midst of despair, there is a king who will still come. God's promises remain the same and they're still needing that king to come. And so you see the significance of the people being carried away into exile. And we'll see this under our next point how God keeps the line going, even after they are carried away. Now, I think what Matthew wants us to see here again is Jesus really is that king promised. He is of the son of David. He is of the seed of David. He really is David's greater son. He is the one Israel had longed for. And he is the one who reigns on high, descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. At his ascension, he proves that he is both Lord and Christ, as Peter says in Acts 2. And Jesus really is the son of David who will bring in his kingdom. And notice the climax of the first section of Matthew, which is Matthew 1 through 4, 417. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of God. Is at hand. The long-awaited Messiah has arrived. The King of God, Kingdom of God is being brought in, and it's based upon faith in this one who is David's greater son. So Jesus really is born of Abraham. Jesus really is the king promised. So that's the son of a king. Let's then look thirdly and finally at the son of a woman, verses 12 through 17. Again, notice the comfort that we have for the exiles in verses 12 through 16, 12 through 15, really. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. A lot of these names we probably have never heard of, but one is important, Zerubbabel. When it comes to the, the returns in the book of Ezra, and Nehemiah, there are three of them. We all know Ezra. We all know Nehemiah. But you know who is first? Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is mentioned in Ezra chapter 3. He is the son of Shealtiel. He's mentioned in Haggai chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 4. That is God, even after exile, keeps the line going. Even under Ezra's return, there's a guy named Hatush in Ezra 8-2, who's the son of David. The point is that after the exile, after uh, what Israel had done, after they were taken away, there's this promise still of the king who would come, and you see it in glimpses. You see it subtly by the line of David, by the one who would come from David. I think that's important for us when we consider the purpose of the book of Chronicles, or the books of Chronicles, because as we consider kings, kings is really about how they got to exile. How they got to the place where they were vomited out of the land. Well, that's built upon the Deuteronomic, uh, uh, Deuteronomy and part of the Deuteronom, Deuteronomic history. That's why Deuteronomy is important. Chronicles, so they are looking back in kings. Chronicles is looking forward. You notice how Chronicles starts? Genealogies. And it starts with very ancient genealog- genealogies, including Abraham's genealogy includes a lot of things that we see here. A lot of the names that we see here are in Chronicles, especially 1 Chronicles 2 and 3. And the reason that's important is because Chronicles actually finishes the Hebrew Bible. In our English Bible, we finish with Malachi, but in the Hebrew Bible, we finish with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. You see, what, what that means is is that the restoration was not enough. The restoration then being brought to the land of Israel once again was not enough. They still needed the King to come. And that's what Chronicles highlights what's ahead. The King is going to come still. The King is going to arrive. And notice how Matthew starts, which is why I believe it's continuing and finishing the Hebrew Bible, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. In fact, you can turn with me to Second Chronicles 36. That's the last chapter. This decree proper of Cyrus was meant for the people when they returned, 538 B.C. But as we consider it in connection with Matthew, don't miss the significance of where restoration actually comes from. Now in the first year, verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 36, Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And if you were reading your Hebrew Bible and turning into your Greek, you would turn right to Matthew chapter one. Jesus is the hope for the exiles. Jesus is the Davidic son that they were longing for. And Jesus is the one who will bring restoration for his people. And certainly Zerubbabel highlights that for us. And the rest of those kings as well, the rest of those men as well. Abiad, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Akim, Eliad, Eleazar, Matan, or Mathan, all the way, uh, Jacob, and all the way to Joseph. And notice too, a lot of these guys we have no idea about. There's something comforting about that. The lesser known of us still are known by our God. Right? There are some people that know that nobody knows about us, but our God still knows us. And certainly these unknown names highlight that for us all the way to Joseph. And notice the language in verse 16, how he is the son of Joseph or the son of Mary. But notice the way it's phrased. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called christ that is joseph's not the father (laughs) joseph highlights the legal line but mary highlights the fleshly line and certainly we're going to see that miraculous birth uh in the coming in the next next week certainly we saw that last year in luke but even there there's a subtle sort of foreshadow of that by the language of whom was born jesus who is called the christ And what's interesting, both the inclusion of Joseph and Mary highlight, first of all, his lowly birth. He's the son of a carpenter. But second all, his miraculous birth. He's born of a virgin. I remember, too, a couple years ago, we looked at all the barren ladies that eventually point to the virgin who would come, or the virgin uh, from whom the Messiah would come. Well, that has come in the one who is of the tribe of Judah. It is the supernatural work of God to make a virgin be with child. He really was begotten according to his human nature. He really was begotten of his mother. And this is uh, in his human nature. Certainly according to his divine nature, he is eternally begotten. I love what Chalcedon says, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten. For us men and for our salvation of Mary, the virgin, the God-bearer. That is, Jesus is really God, and we'll see that in 123, but Jesus is really man. And this is what this highlights for us. Or perhaps Chalcedon's not your speed, but maybe hymn 151. This is, O oh, come all ye faithful, O oh God God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten not created. Again, our Christmas songs have rich Christology when it comes to our Lord. He really is very God, and behold, he abhors not the virgin's womb. It's important to highlight when it comes to who assumed the human nature really was that second person of the Trinity. He who is God is the one who took on human nature, and what he took on was a rational soul and body. And why does he do that, brethren? To save. To save his people from their sins. Jesus really is the Christ promised. He really is the son of God. He really was born into this world, born to save wretched sinners like us. The sad thing is many of the Jews throughout Matthew's gospel will struggle to see that. That's why We need the eyes of faith, do we not? We need God to do a mighty work in our minds, in our hearts, that we might see Christ certainly as God, but see him as man as well. They didn't just struggle with the Godhead part of it. They also struggled with the carpenter aspect of it. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's why we need to believe by faith. Spurgeon says, The portion before us looks like a string of names, And we might fancy that it would yield us little spiritual food. We may not think lightly of any line of the inspired volume here. The spirit sets before us the pedigree of Jesus and sketches the family tree of the King of the Jews. Marvelous condescension that he should be a man and have a genealogy. Even he who was in the beginning with God. We believe upon him by faith. He really is Jesus who is called Christ and then notice in verse 17 so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations again theological notice three two sevens let's do that again three two sevens or perhaps better six sevens what's he trying to highlight for us Jesus is the one who brings fulfillment and makes all things complete in him. Notice all the eras of Israel's history are involved in this genealogy, from the patriarchs to the Exodus, to the judges, to the kings, to the exile, but specifically from Abraham to, to, to David. We have the patriarchal period, from David to the uh, captivity, you know, the Davidic king kingship, and then from 12 to 16, Uh, We have the exile. And what it highlights for us is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Israel's history. That he is the one Israel had longed for, and there's completion and completeness in him. And what's so blessed, his generation, his kingdom remains forever complete in him. He is the fulfillment of all. He was the one in the fullness of the times who was born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Or as our confession says, talking about the one who is God, that second person of the Trinity being very and equal God throughout our confession in eight two in that same paragraph, when you get closer to the end, he says, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah of the seed of Abraham and of the seed of David, according to the scriptures one who is fully God, one who is fully man, and the one who is the God-man took on human flesh to save his people from their sins. And notice, brethren, the emphasis throughout this, people. Not events, not institutions, but people. Wandering people, childless people, incestuous people, adulterous people. Hopeless people, exiled people. Jesus came to save sinners from all their sins. And so if you think you are a good person, look at the failures of Israel and flee to Christ by faith. Or if you think you are too sinful, look at the failures of the Old Testament saints and fly to Christ by faith and your sins shall be Forgiven you. Hymn 145 says, From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Brethren, don't miss Jesus, whose birth is what the world longed for. Don't miss who he is as we read about where he came from well let us pray O oh, lord our god we are thankful for christ and for his assumption of a human nature thank you O oh god it was he who became man fully god and fully man thank you O oh god that he is the one who is like us in every way with all our essential properties common infirmities yet he is without sin and thank you O oh god Uh, that he did, he came to die for wretched sinners like us and even wretched sinners like who we read in this genealogy. Thank you that he is born of the son of Abraham, born of the son of David. He really is born of the son of a virgin. And thank you, O God, that he is the one who brings fulfillment. He is the one who brings completeness. And thank you, O God, as you've told us in previous sermons, that we are complete in him because of his dwelling. And so we pray, O oh God, you'd give us comfort and encouragement as your saints. Give us strength, we pray, each and every day. Help us to be reminded again of who Christ is and what he has done for us and what we are in him. And so we ask, O oh God, be with us now by your spirit, strengthen your saints. We pray that anybody here today who doesn't know you, we pray that you would save their souls. Give them the eyes of faith, we pray. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.